I actually would not say that is true. I don't think we're likely to see a multilateral binding treaty at that UN level at all anytime in the near future. States right now just do not have the political will to get there. Welcome to the Space Power Podcast, where we interview strategists and defense experts on national power in space. I'm Jason Joel, and with me is Josh Gonzalez. Joining us today is Dr. Andrea Harrington, a licensed attorney and current Dean of Space Education at Air University. Dr. Harrington previously served on the faculty of the University of Mississippi School of Law as the Associate Director of the LLM Program in Air and Space Law. She has also served as Associate Chair for the Policy, Economics, and Law Department of the International Space University's Space Studies Program. Dr. Harrington holds advanced law degrees in air and space law from McGill University, as well as additional degrees from the University of Connecticut School of Law, the London School of Economics, and Boston University. She is the author of the award-winning book, Space Insurance and the Law, and numerous other works, many of which we will discuss here today. Dr. Harrington, thank you for joining us. Thanks, very happy to be here. Always happy to talk about space law. Great, we're, yeah, we're so excited to have you here. One of the things that we didn't mention in your bio was a more recent accomplishment where you coached and mentored a team of guardians who had no background in law whatsoever to win a regional space law moot court competition. And now that team will be competing on the international stage this fall in Baku. So congrats on that win. Thank you. Yeah, and we'd like to start off each episode setting kind of a baseline understanding of the topic. So generally speaking, what is space law and what got you interested in it? So if you're unfamiliar with space law, it might sound a little odd to you that there's law for outer space. But in reality, if you think about it, it's just like, for example, the law of the sea. There is law that governs the high seas. There is law that governs outer space activities. At the top level, Space law is really international law. There's international law, uh, both from general international law and from space-specific treaties between countries that governs activities in space and how people interact uh, and how their equipment interacts in space. At the domestic level, every country that's involved in space activities has their own domestic laws and regulations that they apply to their own citizens who are acting in space. It's in conformity with the international space law, but there is that domestic space law component as well. So there are those two different levels when you're thinking about space law. So to summarize or reword for my non-law brain, the international law tells the domestic countries what the, how they should govern their own space activities or space activities conducted by their citizens. Is that accurate to say? So there are certain parameters, uh, general principles that international space law sets and domestic space law has to conform to those principles. But there is a whole range of ways that states can choose to implement those principles and a lot of different decisions that states can make. So it's not that states are very restricted in how they are carrying on activities in space. It's really just that general set of principles. So for example, in terms of those private space activities, states are required to authorize and provide continuing supervision for their private actors as well as government actors in space. But how that state or country, uh, state is just the, the word that we're using for country in this case, 
how that state chooses to do so is really up to them. So many states have licensing or permitting regimes by which they conduct that authorization prong. But of course, it's up to the state what the parameters of that are, how you obtain a permit or a license, and how long that takes, how long the permit or license is good for, whether it's per launch or whether it's a, a longer term license to, to do a particular activity. That's all up to the state and the parameters are all up to the state, but the state has that obligation to authorize and provide that continuing supervision for its actors that are participating in space activities. Do we tend to see, or, or do you tend to see a wide variety of how states choose to implement those laws under the international regime, or is it fairly, uh, fairly similar between states on on how they implement those domestic laws? There is a lot of variation, especially in terms of the structure of how those laws are implemented. So, which agency is the regulator? In many states, it's the space agency that regulates those private actors in space. But obviously, in the United States, NASA is not a regulator for us, right? The FAA, Office of Commercial Space Transportation, is the one who deals with the launch and reentry licenses, very separate from NASA, while other states will have their NASA equivalents doing that. Uh, some countries don't have laws in the form of legislation that are governing these activities. They might have white papers or decrees that set up that, that framework for space regulation, space governance in those countries. It's not necessarily legislation in the way that we think of it in the United States. So there are very many different ways to structure uh, that kind of authorization and supervision. And really, it depends on the level of space activities that the country has going on. How many different actors are they having to authorize and supervise? That plays a role in how states are going about conducting that governance activity. Does that go even to a lower level within the United States? So does Texas have different space law from California or is it all more federally mandated? So most of what we're thinking about when we're talking about domestic space law is federal in the United States. Uh, I, I won't go too much into how that relationship works between states and the federal government for laws, but states do have the ability to provide their own legislation and regulations where they're not preempted by the federal government in doing so. And so some states do have their own space law on the books that is compatible with the federal space law. So the federal space law is still going to apply. But for example, there are special state tax regimes for space companies or spaceport facilities and those sorts of activities to try to attract space business to individual U.S. states. There are also waivers of liability on the books in certain states that are trying to attract that activity to for spaceflight participants to waive liability for the companies and their contractors that are putting them into space. For right now, those liability waivers are not active because a, a federal law came into effect after some of those state laws were passed that waived that liability through at least 2025, unless that's extended further by the Congress. So those laws are still there on the books in those states, but they're dormant until and unless that liability preemption expires at the federal level. Stepping back a little bit, can you talk about some of the key international treaties and agreements related to space law and how they regulate the use and exploration of outer space? Absolutely. So the fundamental one that everybody thinks about when we're talking about international space law is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which has all of the major spacefaring players who are party to it and which has really maintained stability in the space domain from its inception. 
There are also three other treaties that come from the same body in the sense they were negotiated in the same body, the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, that follow along from the Outer Space Treaty and build on specific provisions in that treaty. So the Return and Rescue Agreement, as it sounds like, deals with return of space objects that might land outside of a state's jurisdiction and rescue of astronauts or personnel of a space object that might find themselves outside of their jurisdiction. There's the liability convention that builds upon the liability provision in the Outer Space Treaty to deal with issues of damage that's caused to other states by space activities. And there's the registration convention that builds on the Outer Space Treaty to set out how states register their space objects to maintain that jurisdiction and control over their space objects. And those three are all pretty widely subscribed, though not as widely subscribed as the Outer Space Treaty. There is also the Moon Agreement, but there are only 18, soon to be 17, states that are party to the Moon Agreement because Saudi Arabia has announced that they are withdrawing. It takes a year for that withdrawal to become effective. So technically right now they're still bound by it. But once that withdrawal is effective, right, that'll go down to 17. So the Moon Agreement does not have a lot of effect uh, in, in terms of that legal arena. Outside of the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, there are a number of other treaties that are really important to space activities. So, for example, the International Telecommunications Union Constitution and Convention govern all uh, activities using radio frequencies, but that includes space. And there are specific provisions for different orbital regimes and their radio frequencies in space that are incredibly important because you really can't do anything in space without radio frequency. And I want to mention also the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which is also sometimes referred to as the Partial Test Ban Treaty, which bans nuclear explosions in space uh, of any kind. So it doesn't have to be a nuclear weapon. Any kind of intentional nuclear explosion is not allowed in space. To be clear, though, nuclear reactors in space are not nuclear explosions, and those are fine. So you can have nuclear reactors to be used for power in space, and that's not a problem. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe a lot of those treaties are what's called hard law. And I know, at least I've heard that space law often falls back on soft law. So could you kind of tell us what soft law is and how that's uh, shaping acceptable behavior in space? Absolutely. So let me start out by saying that you're absolutely right. The treaties are what we would call hard law. And there are other forms of international hard law as well. Customary international law that has crystallized to form rules that states have to follow. That's hard law as well, even though it's not codified. You know, you don't have states who are drafting and negotiating language and agreeing to it. It's still hard law, even though it's not codified in that sense. Soft law is a bit of a misnomer in the sense that it's not law or not yet law. In some cases, it will become law, but not in all cases. It's more like norms that states have agreed to that are not legally binding. So when you hear the term soft law, that's what that means. So for example, UN resolutions that are not treaties, states have not gone through a ratification process. Like for example, in the United States for a treaty, we have to get the advice, advice and consent of the Senate to be able to become party to a treaty. Resolutions are voted on by US representatives in the UN, but they're not signed or, you know, they're not signed by the president and they're not ratified by the Senate. So therefore, they don't have that binding force of law, but they represent agreements that states come to in terms of how they're going to conduct their activities and behavior in space. So a good example 
of that would be the remote sensing principles that were negotiated. It took 15 years actually to negotiate the language of the remote sensing principles. So in that sense, that's longer than a lot of treaties take to negotiate. So states take them very seriously in terms of coming to these agreements. But the big difference is that if other countries are not following along with those agreements, then there is no legal breach if you say, okay, nobody else is following it, we are not going to follow it either because this isn't working. Whereas if you ratify a treaty, even if other countries aren't complying with that treaty, if you have ratified it, you're still bound to follow along on that treaty. So it gives countries more flexibility to be able to test a new regime and see if states are going to uphold their word and follow along with it. And if they do, there are a number of ways that those guidelines or norms can become hard law, whether that states then saying, okay, we're gonna negotiate a treaty and get that signed, or whether that's crystallization into customary international law, or whether they become part of the treaty interpretation process through consistent state practice under an existing treaty like the Outer Space Treaty. So that would be what we see with U.S. promoting the Artemis Accords and, and trying to shape those behaviors with the hopes that somewhere down the line that either comes customary international law or sets the framework for a future treaty. Is that correct? So the Artemis Accords are an interesting example because that is not sort of a universally negotiated uh, set of documents, unlike, say, UN resolution, which all the members of UN Copious would have a say in that negotiation. So the Artemis Accords are voluntary. The individual states are signing on to the U.S.'s Artemis Accords document, and it itself is not a treaty, so it is not binding law, but it's not being handled quite in the same way as a multilaterally negotiated kind of soft law. Now, those norms established by the Artemis Accords are still going to be very important for those Artemis Accords partners as they continue to develop activities for cislunar space and for the surface of the moon. And there may wind up being a treaty for lunar activities among those states, just like you saw for the International Space Station. There's the, um, there's the governing agreement for the International Space Station, which is a treaty among the ISS parties. And so that may evolve. We may have a treaty for those parties to operate on the moon. But having the Artemis Accords as an agreement up front of how states are going to conduct their business allows messaging of what we think those norms should look like. And I say we, I'm talking about U US and allies, right, should look like for behavior in space. And there are two competing sets of, of scholars and thinkers on the subject. One that says doing things this way with a group of allies is going to be divisive and cause fragmentation of the legal regime because there will not be agreement. Other states are going to be acting in different ways and you'll get conflict and confusion based on the fact that there is not consistent practice. And then the other set that says, look, when you're, when you're dealing with activities in space and on the lunar surface, there is a, a small range of logical ways to handle problems. And so the other groups of states that are going to be acting on the moon are going to come up with their own guidelines and they're going to have similar conclusions. And ultimately, that's a good thing for crystallization of customary international law, because you will see that that practice is very likely to be consistent and states are likely to believe this is how they need to act on the lunar surface anyway. And so it'll be interesting to see how that continues to develop and play out in the future. Uh, but I think a better example of an effort towards soft law in a broader sense right now would be the discussion that's going on in the open-ended working group 
on space threats and responsible behavior in space that's occurring on a periodic basis in Geneva, which has that UN impetus behind it and that range of states negotiating, which include Russia and China, among others, whereas the Artemis Accords do not currently include those states. I'm not asking you to predict the future here, but if you had to throw out a guess, it sounds like maybe the open-ended working group has a better chance of uh, becoming a binding treaty signed by the major space actors, more so than some of the other um, UN General Assembly resolutions and, and bilateral agreements that are being that we talked about previously. I actually would not say that is true. I don't think we're likely to see a multilateral binding treaty at that UN level at all anytime in the near future. States right now just do not have the political will to get there. I do think it could result in a resolution or a set of guidelines that are voted on at that level and agreed to that could have a very positive influence on the development of guidelines for responsible behavior in space and that really help with the communication between states in space to ensure stability, security, safety going forward. That doesn't mean that I think there's going to be a binding treaty because I don't. I think in smaller groups among partners like the Artemis Accords, as I mentioned, that I think is likely to become a treaty. But I really don't see there being a, a major multilateral treaty at kind of a UN level coming out of this anytime soon. Part of that comes from the legacy of the Moon Agreement. So I mentioned there's only those 18 parties to the Moon Agreement. A lot of time and effort went into negotiating the Moon Agreement, and then it functionally failed, right? You didn't get the major states involved in it. And so the Moon Agreement's been shoved aside, not very useful. But some of those resolutions that were negotiated and have been agreed to. There are also debris mitigation guidelines, for example, that were, have been really beneficial that are not part of a binding treaty, but they exist agreed upon by states in that soft manner that, ha that, are, that are really helpful. And so I think the Moon Agreement was a lesson to say, well, if you make it a treaty and it fails, it's not going to be very helpful. But if we don't try to make it a treaty and we vote on it and we agree on it and we move on from there, it's not binding law, but it's more likely to actually have an effect on the behavior of states moving forward where you don't have that requirement for ratification going through a domestic process that you would have with a treaty. Yeah, you mentioned space debris. Uh, that's become a hot topic over the past few years, obviously. Are there any legal frameworks in place to address debris mitigation, removal? Um, what are countries doing to work together for that? Yeah, so in terms of the, the legal framework, uh, the only thing that really relates to the environment in space from the Outer Space Treaty is Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty that says you have to act with due regard for other, space, other states' space activities and that if you think you're going to potentially harmfully interfere with other states' space activities, you're supposed to consult. So it doesn't say you have to not do those activities, right? It just says you have to consult about them if you do them. If states were more willing to use those provisions for space debris, I personally think that would be highly beneficial for the development of the space law regime. Uh, and so I, I think using the tools we already have in our toolbox, because that's something that's binding, states have agreed to it. It's an underutilized tool that doesn't get pulled out. Hey, we already have this tool. Let's pull it out and use that as we're trying to deal with these problems for space debris. But that's really the only thing in the Outer Space Treaty that would be geared in that direction toward space debris. If you wanted to talk about something that was an intentional debris creating 
incident that would really significantly wipe out, for example, an orbit, at that point you would be getting into Article 1 issues as well, infringing upon the freedom of access and use for outer space for other states. But it would have to be something much more dramatic to get into that Article 1 territory. You're just kind of in that Article 9 territory up to that point. There are soft law guidelines for dealing with space debris. For example, the IADC, Interagency Debris Committee, guidelines that were largely onboarded uh, for a UN debris mitigation resolution. There's also uh, recommendations from the ITU that I mentioned earlier that deal with debris, particularly in geostationary orbit, that have been very beneficial. So for example, the low Earth orbit rules for deorbiting within 25 years of end of mission life have been very successful. Most states are following along with those, especially the big players that are putting a lot into low Earth orbit. Though now we're seeing with enhanced space activities, proliferation of space activities, that maybe that 25 years is too long. At the time it was good, right? And, and states are following along and being good players there. But we need to look at whether or not that needs to be shortened and, and have that discussion at the international level. In terms of debris removal, uh, there is no prohibition on debris removal. The problem is, since a country maintains jurisdiction and control over its space objects indefinitely and maintains liability if they're a launching state of that space object indefinitely, that creates barriers to cleaning up space debris. Because if you don't know who the debris belongs to, can you really take it? It's not yours. There, there are questions there. Uh, you would have to get permission if you do know who the debris belongs to, and there are questions about liability if damage is caused in that process of removing the debris. If that country who the original object belongs to could be on the hook, maybe they're not going to give you permission to remove it because it's stable where it is right now, but if something goes wrong when you're moving it, it could cause damage and then they're going to have to pay out. So there's a lot of complexities there, uh, and there's obviously also the concerns with any kind of active debris removal that that could be dual use as a weapon. And so I think countries have to work through some of that so that we can get an active debris removal process in place to deal with some of those bigger pieces of debris. There are some private companies involved in that space now. Astroscale is one good example that has a proof of concept on active debris removal technology. And so it's promising to see that moving forward. As we also start to see more refueling options for satellites and on-orbit servicing and repair options in general, that also will help to mitigate the space debris problem as stuff that either is useless or could become useless can then be repurposed uh, and, and continue to have a life doing something useful in space that, that will benefit, obviously, the, the debris problem as well. It's interesting to see some of the things that those private companies are doing, both as on-orbit servicing and just general practices. One of the things you see SpaceX doing is when they launch their Starlink satellites, they initially do it to a lower altitude before raising it up to a higher altitude. And the idea with that is if those sat some of those satellites are unresponsive, they would deorbit much faster than if they were at a higher altitude. Is there areas of the law where companies' practices dictate how the law is generated rather than the law necessarily dictating how companies behave? So the practice of companies in any industry, especially when you're talking about technology that is developing and being implemented rapidly, can influence the development of the law going forward. So it's not going to create law, but it can influence that development. And one good example that I talk about in the book that you mentioned earlier, uh, that space insurance book, 
talks about how with regard to steam boilers, yes, steam boilers, old, going old school here back to the 1800s, <laughs> they were really pretty dangerous technology and government regulations dealing with them were not very effective. You were still getting a lot of boiler explosions causing massive property damage and a number of deaths. But the Hartford Steam Boiler Insurance Company stepped in and said, okay, well, if you want to get insurance for this because they're really dangerous, here are the things that we're going to require for you to get insurance. And it, once you get insurance, if you want to pay a lower premium, these are the th additional things you need to do to get a lower premium. And we're going to send out inspectors to make sure that you're complying with that. And as that regime from Hartford Steam Boiler Insurance became very effective and the number of accidents and incidents with steam boilers started to come down, individual U.S. states started to implement essentially those rules for insurance policies that Hartford Steam Boiler had put in place into their state regulations. Uh, and then, of course, as that negotiation bubbled up and started to permeate across at the international level, you saw steam boilers becoming regulated to be safer uh, to operate. And of course, now we don't even think about steam boilers exploding and causing damage, although they certainly occasionally rarely still do because they are dangerous at a certain level. It's not something that we think about as being a pervasive problem in society. And those insurance uh, insurance policies that came along early on helped to get us to that point before there was regulation or legislation in place to do that effectively. So kind of testing the waters, adjusting over time, and then being able to demonstrate, hey, this is what is successful. So in your book, do you discuss any current application of that? Do you see, for example, space insurance affecting norms and behaviors of private companies right now? So, so part of the objective of the book was to help insurance companies and folks who are involved with insurance companies understand the effect that they can and do have on the space industry overall to be mindful of, hey, this is the role that you're playing, kind of whether you want to or not, here's where you are. Uh, so, so think about it from that perspective. Right now, the space insurance sector is pretty competitive in terms of those, those insurance companies that are providing that insurance. And so it might take a little while to evolve to that level where you see differentiation in requirements for satellite hardening, debris mitigation of that kind, but, but it could evolve in that area, particularly with regard to debris mitigation, with regard to transponder requirements or propulsion requirements, that kind of stuff. Those are all areas where insurance companies really could set a standard even if governments aren't setting a standard for that kind of debris mitigation, insurance companies could also and, and have started to actually engage with commercial space situational awareness providers to get access to that kind of data to avoid the likelihood of collisions in space from that perspective. Once we start seeing more humans going into space as private citizens, uh, fewer, fewer government astronauts, more private citizens overall, uh, then, of course, the insurance requirements for insurance for those individuals and for the vehicles that are carrying those individuals is going to play a role as well. So whatever safety standards might be in place in individual countries for domestic regulations, the insurers who are a few big insurers that are providing that insurance globally are going to set their own standards to be willing to provide insurance. And that's likely to have a baselining effect to kind of bring everybody up to the same level, even if your individual domestic regulations might not be as robust in a particular country. Do you think that as the cost of uh, space operations and space launch continues to go down, that more 
insurers will get involved in space insurance or is that that market likely to be consolidated amongst a few large players? So in, in that particular question, I would make a parallel to aviation and say, I do think over time, you will see more insurers getting involved in that market and feeling more confident. When you look at aviation, you have a lot of statistics that you can use when calculating your insurance policies. You have a lot of aircraft that have been in service for a number of years. You can you know figure out what the likelihood of an incident is with those aircraft. You don't really have that with space yet with space vehicles. There haven't been as many launches to calculate those numbers on the individual vehicles that are being used right now, because it's pretty significant, right? When you think about the difference between how many, you know, Boeing 737s are flying every day, how many, how many times they take off and land, there's a huge difference there between even, you know, SpaceX vehicle. And so as that number starts to increase of those launches using the same launch vehicles over and over again, that's I think when you will start to see more insurers being comfortable getting into that space, into that market. Yeah, once they really have the data to refine their models and, and get more accurate predictions, then yeah, I'm sure their their cost margins will go down. And Yeah, and Rocket Lab is, is an interesting one too because they're mm -hmm. really ramping up their pace of launch. And so the reliability of their vehicle is something that they'll start to prove uh, pretty quickly given the pace of launch that they're looking at. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, we had an opportunity to visit Rocket Lab's facility out in California back in the fall. And it's it's amazing what they're doing. And they're not obviously at the level of SpaceX in terms of pumping out rocket bodies and satellites and things like that. But what they're doing with 3D printing and, and, and getting stuff going is is pretty amazing. And it's exciting to see. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed part one of the space law discussion with Dr. Harrington. Be sure to check back for part two or be notified when that episode and any future episode is posted by giving us a follow on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>